Welcome to the Tennis Addict Podcast, the podcast for tennis fans by tennis fans. Listen as the hosts break down the latest news and tournament results from around the tennis world. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced early each week, so feel free to add us to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The links will be in the show notes. Here are your hosts, Mike, Eric, and Michael. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Tennis Attic Podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and with me is Eric and Michael. Hello, everybody. All right, so this is our mid-tournament report for the Australian Open. Uh, A lot has gone on in the first week, and uh, before we get to any of that, we're going to kind of get into the announcement portion of our uh, episode here. So a couple of things we wanted to get to is um, uh, first thing, I guess, would be the daily recaps. So if you were listening to those and we didn't do any more, you might be wondering why. So it really came down to, I think, what, a logistics issue? It was it was very difficult for the three of us to uh, to do it, and, and, and admittedly, it was kind of on a whim. Yeah, we, we kind of decided last minute to do this, and although the idea is great, um, we all just want to yeah, all of us, all work, of us different work shifts. Yeah, so. all of us work. And Eric, how did you say it? We have three overlapping shifts throughout the day, so that that makes it kind of difficult. Um, Mike works super early in the morning. I work a somewhat normal time frame and then Eric's kind of into the evening a little bit. So that, that definitely has made it difficult for the three of us to, to record it, but not to say this isn't something that we may do in the future. It is something that we definitely are still working on. And I think the Australian open itself is what makes it difficult because, you know, it's 7 PM. Our time uh, here on the East coast is when it's 11 AM there. So, you know, we would be the only time we could have maybe done this was around the time it started anyway so it, it felt like all right if we couldn't get it kind of out earlier in the day where most people you know can listen to it while at work or so on and so forth and we're gonna end up putting this thing out a half hour to an hour before the start of the day it didn't feel like it would be worth it as much because i mean who's gonna listen to our podcast to get info by that time you're already gonna know you're gonna look it up yourself or so on and so forth so that's why i mean for the other grand slams it's gonna be a little bit easier especially the u.s open um we'll be able to get something out like at the end of the day type of deal maybe or so on and so forth but for australia it just we couldn't couldn't do it where it makes sense well and i think a lot of that came down to the fact that like we said this was kind of a thing that i just started. I I was sitting here and I think I said it in my first episode, which by the way was hastily thrown together, <laughs> had absolutely zero preparate. Fans, we apologize. We had nothing to do with this. Eric and I completely had nothing to do with it at all. It was all my. <laughs> it was all. It was me, terrible, and, and we know that it was bad, and we're sorry. Yeah, yeah. So basically, <laughs> what this comes down to is. It was just a thing done on a whim, and I think the idea is great, and we would like to do it for all four Grand Slams. It just takes uh, a little more planning on our part, and I think we needed time to kind of work out how this would, you know, uh, how we yeah, would do we this. Need, we need new jobs to, to make that happen, yeah. <laughs> where we all work the same shift. Yeah. 
Well, I think what yeah, it'll come guys, down to guys. What we need to do is we need to just quit our jobs, and we all need to just go play tennis all the time, and uh-huh. just you know, I don't. I'll know. be dead by the end of the week. My wife will just string me up with a tennis racket. So I don't there you go. That's, that's, yeah, that's that would probably sound the same for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So basically, uh, we're going to look at this going forward and it'll give us time between now and the French Open to kind of work out how we want to do this. Uh, we would like to do the daily recaps because it is a really great idea. It allows us to comment on the matches day to day as opposed to waiting till halfway through the tournament so we can cover you know the week's action. And, uh, and that will then allow us to maybe get into a different kind of discussion come you know, the Sunday podcast where we could maybe focus on a topic more so than spending a lot of the time recapping the events of the week. And so we're going to look forward to doing that as we get closer to the French Open. We'll kind of hammer out the details. And now when it comes to the Australian Open next year, you know, again, we'll try and and make that a reality. But between now and then, we're going to have plenty of time to work out how we're going to do it. So... And just kind of give you guys a uh, idea that moving forward, we'd like to do this, but we just need to plan it better. So, and that's my fault. So that's it. Um, all right. So I'm going to hand it over to Michael. Uh, he is going to uh, take the reins on this episode. And this will be a, uh, what, this is a four setter? Yeah. Four setter. This yep. is a four setter. Four setter. Okay. So uh, Michael, take it away. All right, so uh, set one, uh, we're going to jump right into a little bit of news, things that have uh, you know been popping up here and there with the Australian Open on and off the court um, before we get into our recap. Uh, so first off, um, something that we forgot to mention last week, um, exciting news in, in the tennis world. We've been waiting for him to come back for a long time and be a factor. Juan Martín del Potro officially was back into the top 10 uh, as of the start of the tournament last week. So we forgot to point that out uh, last week, and something that we did want to point out is it's good seeing him back and healthy. And obviously from the draws that we did last week, uh, many of us thought that he was going to make it quite a far into the tournament. Um, so something, again, we just want to touch on um <clears throat> off the court um we've talked to many, uh, for a while now with azarenka being out due to the custody battle that she is is currently a part of um some news has come out that uh the judge uh in the united states that was ruling upon it has actually decided that they fear or f- uh they believe that the u.s court shouldn't be the ones that are ruling upon this custody battle but it should actually be handled in a belarus court um any further, anything further on that, Mike, at all? Uh, or was that something that, that that was just kind of all that, that you had read at that point in time? Uh, that's all I had read, actually. Uh, I think that at this point, this is about the most information we're going to get for the moment. So, yeah, I mean, things have been fairly hush-hush about it um, on that front. I haven't heard a whole lot of news too much um, as far. But, I mean, let's be honest. It is a custody battle. It should be a private thing. Um, obviously, you know, we talk about it. Azarenka has been a big factor in Grand Slams for a long time now. Um, so it's news in that she's not here. Um, so, again, I don't think that there's going to be a ton of news coming out about it until – more than likely, we there's a ruling that's actually taking place. So as far as that goes, good luck to her um, and, and you know her continued battle there, and hopefully sooner than later, so that we can see her back on the tennis court. Um, the number one story 
in Australia this year, although there haven't been soaring temperatures through the entire tournament, um, we did have two days that uh, pummeled players with heat. Uh, with that happening, uh, a couple of things. One, uh, there was some controversy as it seemed as though uh, in press conference Novak Djokovic related to saying, implying, I should say, that um, Roger Federer in particular may have been receiving uh, preferential treatment being scheduled for night matches uh, to avoid the daytime temperatures on those days. Um in my eyes, we, we've talked about this before, um, that the top seeds get that preferential treatment. They get to play on um, they get to play on the biggest courts and they get to play on those courts in uh, the prime time slots just because that's how the tournament makes their money. We've had yeah, that but, discussion before, I think but what about me if I'm wrong. Go but, ahead. But what about you know it's Djokovic is implying that uh, when it comes to you know, between him and Roger you know, that's it's not about like oh, Rogers. If, he, if if that's exactly how he was implying it, yes, I understand that. But yeah. let's be honest, you know, Novak, you are a top player, right? Yeah, he's the top so, player. So, so in terms of things, in my eyes, and again, this is just um, he's just complaining in my eyes because uh, he has had this preferential treatment for many years as well. Sure. In I my agree. eyes. Um, and I mean, we we talked about it. Um, I, I do believe in a post match press conference or on court uh, conference uh, interview. Sorry, that Roger had. They had asked him about playing in the nighttime, and he said himself, "I don't have a problem playing during the day." And they asked him, "You know, did you request nighttime?" They flat out asked him, "Did you request nighttime matches?" He goes, "Yeah, me and about sixty other people did." Again. It's out of his hands, though. Everybody's going to ask to not play in the daytime heat. Mm-hmm. Obviously, everyone asks for that. But in in this instance, in my eyes, Novak can't sit and say that because he's had that same treatment for how many years now? Where he's played night session after night session mm-hmm. after night session. Um, and Eric, I obviously want you to get into this discussion here. Um, your Your thoughts on this, because... Obviously, you know, Nadal has played during the day several times, but he's also played at night several times. And I know that, you know, that's that's who you and Mike follow. In your eyes, did did you feel as though there was preferential treatment one way or the other? Uh, yeah, uh, but it's not surprising either. Um, I mean, nothing against Djokovic, but it's a business. I don't think it's particularly great. Um, Rogers played every match at night. That's the part where Djokovic is getting a little upset about. It's different if you're switching it up, you know, if he, if he has one day and then the rest night. But mm-hmm. it's always been night. Um, this is true. Nadal has had uh, one He's- match. His first match was the early night match. It was at seven. Still hot, not bad though. It's Kent's a night match. It doesn't matter either, regardless. After that, he's always been the third on during the day, which is the hottest part of the day. Because um, you know, it, it, your hottest part, yeah, between one and three, the sun's directly over. But from three to five, three to six is when you have your highest on court temperatures normally. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, and then Djokovic had kind of the same. Where I don't think he played. I don't think Djokovic has played one night match. No, to be he's, play, he's I think played he's played daytime every day. So it's it's I understand the fact that you, you know what they're doing, 
but and they, I've, I've been watching them mix other people up, but it's it's funny that that is what's happening, is that Roger's getting the preferential treatment, and I understand it to an extent, because let's be honest, what's best for business? A Roger Rafa final. Okay. And not saying is, that, that not is, saying but... that not not saying the tournament's like, okay, because I know they're not. They're not going, all right, we're gonna put Roger at night, we're gonna put Djokovic during the day. We don't want Djokovic to beat Roger because it's for best for business and ticket sales and money. You know, this is what we're gonna do. They could try it. That doesn't guarantee anything anyway. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit unfair, but I think they do need to, you know, bringing a light to it, bringing light to it, they need to acknowledge it and go, okay, yeah, we didn't do it on purpose. They need to schedule Roger for a daytime match because I will start calling crap out publicly if well, he keeps going so through and keeps getting just, night. Cause just because so he's 36. You do know, today, he is scheduled last during the day. So okay. in that hot in that hot spot today, and, he's and, scheduled and, third and, match on late. And today. I would love to know, was that, and we're never going to get Austin Payne because people lie through their teeth. This is true. Is, was that because of, of what happened or was that already planned? You're not going to know now. So, and I mean, that's true. And, and, and that's I'm fine with that. There is so a lot I of know, shadow games was, that way. So. Exactly. You know, now he's scheduled late, then I'm fine with it. You know, and Novak as, is first in the night session, by the way. Yeah, I think um, I so think nice they heard that. <laughs> I think they heard that and they went, crap. You know, not saying they even do it on purpose. I think and I understand it to a certain extent. The dude's 36. Is it going to affect him more during? I mean, he's a freakish athlete. Don't get me wrong. Roger's not going to affect him crazy. But let's be honest, dude. Gilmore Feast was about to pass out and die. During <laughs> All right. You but, put Roger in well, that. Go ahead. Feast, go ahead. Mm-hmm. It, you don't know what it was going to do. And it would suck for someone like Roger to lose solely because it was so hot they shouldn't have been playing anyway. In my honest opinion, I feel that it, it, he he would have been fine. What I was asking or what I was bringing up was in that interview, they asked him, you know, did you ask for night session? He said, well, yes, of course I did. But everybody else did it as well. So that's out of my hands once I do that. We know that this is that way every year in Australia. And all the top players go, I want to play at night. Of course they do because there's not the heat. But again, this is still on the tournament at that point. But they did ask Roger, you know, what are your thoughts about playing in the day? He says, well, in my eyes, I would like to be the one that can go out there during the daytime and, you know, sweat it out with the rest of the guys. He basically, in what he said, and again, this is after a match is taking place and everything. But, you know, he said, I I don't have a problem playing during the day if I'm scheduled for it. I'm not going to complain about it, but it is what it is. Well, look, okay. So my my other opinion on this is that Roger's kind of getting an opportunity to kind of play both sides here, right? So on one hand, he can say, you know, okay. So on one hand, he's saying, look, I uh, wanted the night session and 60 other people did, but come on. Roger Federer says, I want night session. Who's going to get it? Do you think, I mean, the only other player, the only person, maybe Rafa and yeah, maybe Djokovic too, but really there's only two to three players out of those 60 that's going to be given serious consideration to get that night slot. And, and why if, is that? Because they're great. Because ratings. they're, they're, they're well, draws. That's, that's what I was getting right. at. That's what I was getting at was ratings. That's, that's the key. And that's something that shouldn't dictate when people play. And, but unfortunately, well, we, remember we talked extent. about this last year in the French Open um, 
I believe it was the fr- or no, yeah, or not not the French Open, US, the US Open. Open last year yeah. when Sharapova made her return, and all of a sudden, hey, she's on Ash every night, and mm-hmm. a lot of players complained then too and said, wait a minute, okay, she just came off of a drug suspension. Why are we giving her the the, the big slot every night? The show court. The show court every night, and again, we talked about it then. It's a money thing. Is it fair? No, it's not. We all said that it wasn't fair then. And I'm not, even as a Roger fan, I'm not going to sit here and say that if, in fact, they are doing it for those reasons, that that is fair. No, it's not. I think that everyone should, within terms, have the opportunity. But that's the way the tournament works. That's how they get their advertising money, by getting everybody to watch those late-night matches, the night session matches. That's how they do it. Um as far as that goes, though, I, I can see why Novak feels that way. I can completely understand that, and justifiably so. But I guess my thing was, for me, why is Novak... It seems to me, since Novak's come back from the injury, in my honest opinion, he's done a lot of complaining. Do you guys agree? There's been a lot of complaining from Novak since he came back, um, uh, which is something else we're going to talk about here later. Yeah, I I kind of had this thought myself the other day, Eric, and I and I'll let you uh, talk in a second here, um, because I was actually thinking about it. And, and granted, I don't have um, any massive love uh, for Djokovic. Obviously, you know we all have our preferences. That being said, I always try to view him in a in a measured way. You know, if he has a great you know tournament and he wins you know a big title, I give him kudos for it because he deserves it. So I try to be fair and reasonable because I have to view him as somebody who's commenting on the sport as opposed to being a fan. And that's what we do here. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing, though. The other day I was sitting here and I was kind of going through the news and um, that kind of entered my head. I thought, you know, Djokovic's only been back, really been back for a couple of weeks now. And especially at the Australian Open, he is really chirpy right now. He's, you know, he's got stuff he did pre-tournament, which we'll talk about. Uh, but even during the tournament, and apart even from the the Roger stuff we just commented on, he's been talking a lot. It's like, I feel like in a way, he's been sitting on the sidelines for the last eight months or so, stewing. And yeah, it feels it, that way. In that time, he's watched Nadal and Federer and to a lesser extent, some of the other up-and-coming players like Zverev, Kyrgios, and a few others making their mark, winning big titles, and just dominating more or less, and especially with Nadal and Federer. And so I think he's sitting there, he's stewing about it, he's, he's kind of angry, and I just, I, just get this, I just get this feeling like he's sitting on the sidelines and he's trying to figure out a way to make when he comes back on tour I'm going to reassert myself and I'm not just going to reassert myself on the te- on the court I'm going to reassert myself in the tennis circle I'm mm-hmm. going to make sure that I think what he kind of wants right now is to be starting to be recognized as the de facto person in tennis like Roger's been the the kind of the guy for so many years right he's the head of the players council I think right is he no Djokovic is Oh, Djokovic is, is now. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, okay. All right. Well, anyway, the thing is, I think that, you know, he wants to be that, that person that 
is kind of dictating what happens in the sport. And he wants to be the, the real, uh, I'm not, I want to say figurehead because that's, that's not really the word, but he, he kind of wants to be the person who's really uh, the, wants, the center of attention. The spotlight and the yeah. focal point to be on him on and off the court as far as tennis goes. Right. And I think he knows how much respect and how much attention gets uh, focused on Roger and, and Nadal as well and him, you know, of course. But I, I think he's been watching Federer and Nadal reassert themselves in a way that he can't or couldn't because he was on the sidelines injured. And I think mm-hmm. it's been a bit of an issue. And I understand, you know, uh, to a degree, but I think that's what's going on. Uh, Eric, what are your thoughts on this? Um, well, I, I agree small a bit, but also what we got to remember here, and we never really talked about it before because nobody here is the biggest fan of Djokovic per se. I mean, it stems <laughs> from his early years where he was complaining um, quitting early, so on and so forth. But uh, he's been the ATP president of the Player Council since August 2016. So he didn't just become president. No, uh, he's no. been that for. No, I'm letting Mike know because he said I just uh-huh. became. And I'm like, no, we're we're over a year now plus. So about a year and three months or so. Kevin Anderson is the vice president. Um, but I, that part of what he talked about during, you know, we're going to get into that doesn't surprise me. Um, and I don't think that part is for attention. I think it's a little bit of attention because last year was all about Nadal and all about uh, Federer, you know, splitting the Grand Slams. He was left out of it. You know, him and Murray were going down, getting beat, so on and so forth. And, you know, when you consider for the last five years, he was basically the most talked about person in tennis, you know, w- with Roger. But let's be honest, from 2011 to 2016, Djokovic was beating the crap out of everybody. Yeah, he was the you guy. Know, the end of 2016, you know, beginning of 2017 is when he starts losing and, you know, doesn't doesn't defend any titles, so on and so forth. So I think it's a little bit of missing the spotlight. You know, the Agassi thing, while it may also be because of Agassi's greatness, I think it's a splash in the tabloids as well, too. You know, oh, my God, Andre Agassi is coaching somebody as well. You know, pulled it out last year. So... Um, I honestly don't like him, but I don't, I think most of what he's said lately from the beginning of the tournament is mostly valid. I understand what he's saying about, you know, the one topic we're going to go with talking about the heat. Um, I think most of it's valid and, but I think what isn't in this trippiness that you guys were saying is trying to you know, be talked about again. Cause like everybody knows there's a stigma surrounding people. Um, you're talked about, you're like coveted, you know, Djokovic doesn't look like he's unbeatable. People aren't playing Djokovic like they were playing at him in 2011 through 14 and 15, where he was just killing people. You know, it's, it's like, like Roger, you know, back in 04, 05, 06, 07, 08, you can step on the court with Roger. You're already a set down in your head. Like you're the crap, you know, it's, <laughs> it's Roger. So you're going out in the court thinking, all right, I'm basically already set down as it is. How am I going to beat this guy? And to a degree, Djokovic had that same stigma for the past five years, except for last year. And I think it's just a way to get back in people's heads, get back in, in the headlines, um, doing whatever he needs to do to jumpstart himself, where there could be motivation factor as well. I think that's it. I, I do understand a lot of what he said 
and I agree where it's coming from because the earlier this week there was some stuff being said that was misconstrued that we almost covered, and I wanted to wait because, you know, as our president says, fake news, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, not always right. But I wanted to hold off just because I started to hear different things, and it was end up being a good thing. Is what I was going to start saying based on what we heard wasn't going to be correct at all type of deal. So I don't know. I mean, that's what I say. I think that it's it's a little mix. I think it's him wanting to be in spotlight and, you know, him wanting to rebuild that kind of stigma that, you know, you go against me, you need to bring everything to beat me. Not last year. Last year he was getting beaten by people who he shouldn't have getting beaten by, and that's due to injury. But still, once that wears off, it's tough to get back. Look at Roger. Roger went, what, five years without winning a Grand Slam? Yep. You know, from what, 11 to 16 or 12 to 17 or something like that. So, you know, and he was getting beat, not all the time, but he was getting beat by random people here and there that he should have never lost to, ranked outside the top 100, you know, things like that. It started to crack, and then it's really tough. Now, after last year, someone goes against Roger. Yeah, he's 36, but you go against Roger now, Mike, what do you think they feel like on court? It's like back in 06 again. You know, he's got that aura of invincibility again. After beating the crap out of everybody last year, and that's what Djokovic wants back. That's what I think. Okay, I agree. I definitely agree with you there. Um, the only last little thing that I wanted to note: we had Djokovic saying that you know about the night match thing, right? But there was also something that came out that him and Andre specifically went to the scheduling committee and asked Eric. You referenced the Malfis match that Djokovic had, um, where Malfis was all but dying on the court in the heat. Djokovic and Agassi requested to play in the middle of the day for that match. So my other little side question is, if he's complaining about not getting night matches, then why are you requesting to play in the middle of the day? Well, I think if he knew he wasn't going to get a night match at all, that's the best time in the day to play. Because Admittedly, no, I agree. I just wanted you guys' thoughts. We, we had already amongst ourselves talked about this, but, you know, for the fans, opinion, I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, in, in my opinion, that would, that goes... It would be very odd and it would be hypocritical if he if he asked for it before he knew he was going to get a night match. I don't see that. He would have taken a night match over playing in the middle of the day if he had the choice, I believe. But well, that's what my, I'm saying. The in only my head, report that I read was that him and Andre specifically, like that was the reported, that was the report that I read or heard was that they specifically asked to be playing in the heat of the day. And like they like everything, it, it could go either way. You would need to find out from multiple people, though, on that source. Because well, I believe that was reported on TV by ESPN. I know. Like, uh, what I'm broadcast. saying is, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm, I, I know. But listen, it's got to be. Was it before or after he found out whether he was going to have a night, day or night match? That makes all the difference. If it was, I after would agree. He found but out, I don't think there's any way to know that. Exactly. So, so I got to go with it speculation. So that's my, my five second okay. thing here is okay. if he knew he wasn't going to be in a night match, it was the smarter decision. And what is Gail's weakness? He's physically fit, but we know Gail. What does Gail have trouble with? Extreme heat. He has tr trouble with it in the French Open 
where it gets unusually hot over there and he doesn't do really well. He cramps very quickly for someone, you know, he's a freakish athlete with no body fat that causes problems and doing an extreme heat. Agassi knew that. I think that was Agassi there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so Agassi I think, knows that Djokovic is healthy now. I think and I Agassi think from what we've seen, you know. I think this is how it went. I think they knew they didn't get the night match. Agassi knew it was going to be extremely hot, knew Monfils' history because he's a genius in that sense, and went, you know what? If we're going to be punished from being out in the heat, we might as well punish our opponent more, and that's why they asked for it. Now, if I'm wrong, I, I, I could be wrong, and that's cool, but I don't this think is what makes wrong. most sense to me <laughs> that that's how that went down, which is just really smart play. It, it sucks that it happened because I would have loved to see Monfils be able to play in not dying heat and see how this match could have gone. But at the end of the day, they made the most of what they were given. And that's what I can see. Right. What do you think, Mike? I mean, do you agree with me or do I, am I looking at it from a wrong? No, I think you're right. Thought? No, I think you're right. I think it's spot on. I, fact, I don't like Djokovic, but I just can't see the dude being hypocritical and asking for the middle of the day before he finds out whether he gets the night match or not. No, I agree with you. I, I didn't, and I really, I don't have a whole lot to add because I just I think that um, he, you know, knew he wasn't going to get the night match, and you know, did the next best thing. There you go. And in my eyes, let's be honest. If you're talking about getting people to watch, in my eyes, Djokovic Malfeast would have been a wonderful night match. You're going to draw a lot of people for that match at night. So in my eyes, you know, I digress, but I in my in my eyes, I think that would have been a logical nighttime session match. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, we'll we'll move on from that. We'll talk a little bit more here uh, further down the line here in the podcast uh, about the heat, which is going to be one of our big topics this year. Um, and not only Djokovic, but many others uh, talking about that heat uh, this year. Do you like podcasts about movies, television shows, books, games, and pop culture? How about sports like football and tennis? Here at Freaking Geeks Media, one of our many goals is to create a variety of podcasts that you can enjoy listening to. From the Freaking Geeks podcast to Hungry for Hannibal, Friday Night Mics, the American Gods podcast, and Stranger Things, we know that giving you an assortment of options is one of the best ways of bringing you back for more. But it does take quite a bit of work and expense on our end to make these podcasts a reality. Patreon gives us the opportunity to make a living doing what we love. However, to do this, we need your help. By donating as little as a dollar a month, you get access to both past and upcoming Patreon-only content, as well as early access to regular episodes before they appear on iTunes. Other tier rewards include monthly Loot Crate giveaways, access to live broadcasts, Freaking Geeks t-shirts, magnets, and much more. We can honestly say that anything given is greatly appreciated. So consider supporting us by going to www.patreon.com slash freaking geeks and check out what we have to offer. We think you'll like what you see and hear. All right, so on to set two. Uh, We begin our recap. Um, I think the easiest way to describe this is uh, welcome to the land of Oz. Uh, <laughs> we we yeah. said that before the re, uh, in our preview for the Australian Open that uh, you know there's probably going to be a lot of uncertainty and a lot of crazy things happen. Well, we in fact got that. Uh, we've had upsets galore pretty much every day. 
Um, we're kind of changing our um, the way that we're doing our recap a little bit in that we're kind of recapping some different things that took place on a day-by-day basis covering the first week uh, instead of just going as a whole. Easy, A little bit easier to break down, a little bit easier for us to talk about. Um, we saw at the end of last season when the US, uh, U.S. Open ended that we had a huge run by the, uh, the American women. Uh, that didn't continue this year. Um, we had a, a basically most of the Americans falling in the first two days, um, left and right. Uh, I, guys, I got to say this is probably the worst showing we've seen out of, especially the American women, in a very long time. Yeah, um, yeah, it's 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 pretty bad. Um, you know, when you have a good majority of the women all falling on the first, you know, couple. Well, I'd say the first two or three days. Uh, most of the women were gone, but even the first day was just ridiculous. The amount of American women that fell. I mean, what Venus? Well, our three top seeds were or three. Three of our top seeds were gone, basically by midday. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Venus Williams lost Jennifer Brady, Sloane Stevens, Coco Vandeweghe, Allison Risk, Taylor Townsend, and Cece Bellis. Uh, all lost. I think there might have been one or two others there too, but there might have been some other. There were some other qualifiers as well, but those are the the, the known names uh, on the American side, and yeah, they all went down relatively quickly uh, during the day uh, of the first day. Um, it was it was very surprising um, to say the least. But Venus Williams uh, probably was the only one of the bunch that it was like, well, yeah, but she played somebody good. Uh, she played. Belinda Bencic, who was kind of that dangerous floater in the draw, um, and that ended up that ended up happening. But um, we did have some other upsets too. On the men's side, uh, we saw American John Isner go down early uh, to Australian Matthew Ebden. Uh, we saw uh, Kyle Edmund upset Kevin Anderson uh, in a long, tough five-setter, and we saw upstart Andre Rublev um, kind of push away the old guard, David Ferrer in five sets, uh, and probably, I would say, probably the match of the first day. Uh, would you guys possibly agree there with the Rublev Ferrer in five sets? I oh, want to yeah. say that was definitely the match of the first day. I do. I agree. I mean, out of everything else, it was it was the best matchup between the two. I mean, Rublev coming out young, you know, doing some proving last year, you know, playing a lot of tough matches and then Ferrer starting to come back. I mean, last year he started to gain, uh, gain some spots again. You know, he was dealing with some injuries the previous couple of years actually. So, uh, but unfortunately, I mean, it was tougher than I expected. I expected Rublev to take him in straights, maybe tough sets, but straights for it. So for it to go five, I thought spoke more about Ferrer not giving up, uh, more than it was about Rublev beating Ferrer. Agreed. Yeah, I agree. Agreed. It was a good match. And, you know, R- Rublev, um, when you watched him at the U.S. Open last year, he was one of those players that kind of came out of nowhere. It felt like it. And you could tell he's extremely green, but the potential is there. And oh, he's got all on, the firepower in yeah, the world. Depending on who wow. he's playing, he can take him out. Uh, there's some players that are going to give him a real, a real problem. But... Um, you can see that this is a guy who is going to be around for a while, and he's so young. So to take down Ferrer, who's so consistent and never gives up on anything, that's an amazing accomplishment. I, yes, I get it. Ferrer is in his 30s. Uh, he's clearly on the back end of his career. Uh, but even so, he's been playing much better in the last you know, uh, six to eight months himself. 
That's what uh, a good racket change will do for you. Right. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A good racket change can do wonders. And uh, we saw that. And uh, so I look at this match and I thought, you know what? This guy, he's proven something. And uh, he did a great job. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so on to day two, uh, upsets continuing. Uh, we continue to see more U.S. women drop left and right. We saw Brangle, Rogers, Lepchenko, Mikhail, and on who, again, not as many as the big, big names of American uh, tennis, but uh, still a lot of promising players. And we just saw, I believe, and I don't have the exact stat here, and I apologize, but I believe it was somewhere around 1-14 in 14 that the U.S. women went in day one and two. Somewhere yeah. around there. So I think that, that, that was, was correct. a horrible stat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, we saw uh, French Hope, Christina Milanovich, continue to struggle as she um, continues her, her losing streak, I believe, well over a dozen matches in a row now, I think, somewhere around there, uh, losing to Anna Bogdan, uh, 6-2, But we did see one shining thing come out of day two, and that's we actually saw Jeannie Bouchard win a Grand Slam match. Um, <laughs> that was kind of a surprise. I think we all kind of are right now are expecting her to continue to fault, but we're all waiting for that reemergence of that player that we saw that uh, nearly dominated uh, a couple seasons ago. So. Yeah, 2014. Men- Go ahead. 2014. Yeah, 2014. Exactly. So, you know, we're it, it's been a while now. <laughs> uh, on the men's side, um, we saw the reemergence of Milos Raonic coming back with the hopes that he was going to be completely fit and healthy. Um, after his match uh, with, with Lacko and day two, we realized that I, I don't think Raonic is there yet. Um, he definitely, his movement is not there yet. The leg's definitely still an issue. He's, his movement's not there yet. And I think he struggled a little bit during the day, uh, physically. I definitely don't think he's as fit as he needs to be to make a true run, but he's got a lot of time till that grass court magical season for him. Uh, any thoughts on any of that guys? I was a little bummed. I yeah, wanted... it, 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 it saddened me a little bit too, because he, he definitely looked like a shell of himself. Well, uh, he didn't. He didn't have. Prime. He didn't have the toughest route to get to like the third round, potentially into the fourth round. I mean, his toughest opponent would have been Query, and you know, Query is good and all, but you know, Milos is a better server normally than Query, unless Query's gotten a magical day. He's not far below him, but I'm just saying, Milos is is a little bit better server, and then he's got a better forehand. But, you know, and I thought he could have made it to the fourth round and then lose to Federer, which would have happened uh, if he'd have made it there. I have no doubt. But it was kind of upsetting that he lost to Lucas Lacko, um, kind of as easy as he did. Now, there was, you know, two tie breaks in there, 7-5 and 6-4. But I was just a little bit, you know, with, with the time he had off, I expected him to at least get through the first round. Um, now, the Heat... You know, he's from Canada, you know, nice freezing cold Canada. Maybe the heat affected him more, kind of like a Gail Malfis. We'll see. I mean, he's got some. Maybe, but it wasn't super hot on day two. I think they were still only in the 80s at that point. True. So we'll see. You know, hopefully, you know, when it comes to Miami and Indian Wells, he's a little bit better in shape. He takes, you know, he should probably take time off now. And if it needs to get into shape, he needs to do it. Putting in the hard yards, as they would say. Yeah, um, I, I think that Rainich is just—he's got a lot of uh, 
a lot of improvements that he needs to make uh, in his fitness. Obviously, he's not ready to really be back. Um, obviously, I think they knew that coming in, and this was more or less, I think, just a chance for them to kind of gauge where he was at <clears throat> and where they need to be physically, uh, physical fitness standpoint, which I think is always a little bit of an issue with Raonic because a guy his size with issues that can easily crop up with like the legs and the knees and everything, considering how, how big he is, how tall he is. And he's not one of those guys that has like giant tree trunk legs like Del Potro does that can like really hold his weight. Well, it's one of the reasons why Del Potro is such a great mover because he has such massive legs and so, you know, so, uh, you know, uh, thick and, and muscular and, it's why he can move so well, but it's also, I think, one of the reasons why he doesn't have near as, nearly as many issues when it comes to his knees and his legs, because his body, it can hold his body weight. Whereas I feel mm-hmm. like with Ranich, so many more injuries pop up with his legs because of it. Um, so uh, I look at Ranich and I think, okay, this is a guy who, and I've said this for years, he really needs to get his legs stronger. I just don't know how much they can do. We don't know what the state of his knees and his legs are with a guy like him. Um, so I feel like uh, you know he's got a lot more work to do fitness-wise. He's got to you know, definitely improve. Uh, but who knows? Come Wimbledon this year, he could be primed and ready to go. Absolutely. And, and we can hope for that. Yeah. We can hope for that because we honestly um, – him going against any of the top guys late in a Grand Slam is an exciting thing to watch. So as we go on to day three, uh, we talked about the temperature starting to rise. Day three, I believe they started to creep into that 90-degree range uh, Fahrenheit um, on day three. But when day three came about, we also had uh, upsets continue, and we saw a lot of, of the top players um, push to the brink uh, on day three. Um, on the women's side, Caroline Wozniacki, probably the escape of the tournament at this point, uh, saved two match points from 5-1 down to the third against Fett to come back and win 7-5 in the third. Um, I, I, I think the best way to describe it is um, this is as far down as you can get without losing. <laughs> um, Basically. We, yeah, yeah. Uh, we saw Julia Gerga's, uh win streak come to an end, being stopped by uh, Elise Cornet, uh, the Frenchwoman. We saw many other upsets continue as well. Pavel Yuchenkova went down. Bencic, who had the great win over uh, Venus Williams in the first round, went down, as well as Kazakina. Uh, and then we also saw one of the Australian hopefuls, uh, Gavrilova, be upset. So the the upsets continued um, uh, past the first two days into day three. Uh, and then on the men's side, um, we saw a few upsets, but we saw a lot of people um, dig really deep and find their way through. Um, a good question I have for you guys. What would be a Grand Slam without an Evo Karlovic marathon match? Um, it wouldn't be a good Grand Slam, right? Exactly. Got to <laughs> um, have that marathoner. We saw Evo Karlovic uh, 12-10 in the fifth over Sugita. Um, something that we see Evo Karlovic do just about every Grand Slam. We see a nice long five-setter out of him, which is still great to see. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Evo is 40 now. Or pretty close to it. 39 or 40. 39 or 40. So it's great to see the big man out there still doing that uh, and being able to do that over five sets. 
against a very tough uh, opponent in Sugita. Uh, we did see one shining thing from the Americans. Ryan Harrison pulled off a great upset of Pablo Cuevas, who had been playing very well at the beginning to start the season um, and actually you know, had a, an opportunity to have a fairly decent run here in Australia. Um, we saw then uh, some young guns get turned away as the day went on. Uh, Denis Shapovalov, uh, two sets to one up on Joe Wilford Sanga. Uh, Sanga turned back the clock, 7-5 in the fifth set. Um, probably uh, one of the best matches of the tournament, you guys would say, to that point. Would you not agree? Or even to this point, yeah. uh, now that we're at the mid midway point of the tournament. Definitely. And one of the things about this match, uh, I was watching it as it played out live. And yeah. You know, the thing is, Shapovalov had uh, match points to win. Yep. You know, he had, it was like, it was weird. It was like watching Wozniacki and Shapovalov on the same day. Uh, or I guess it, more like Fett and, and Shapovalov, mm -hmm. both in prime position to win the match. By mm -hmm. all rights, they should have won. And the fact that they didn't, it, it just speaks to the player on the other side of the net. And I'll be honest, I watched the Wozniacki match. And I can I honestly too. say that in the announcers, myself, we all thought the same thing. Wozniacki's done. She's out of this tournament. And the way Fett was playing in that match, the fact that it was, it was even a three-setter, kind of crazy. Because it, really was. Fett, it was. It was credit yeah. to Wozniacki to, to even keep herself in a position to even attempt to come back because pretty much nothing was working for her at that point. And well, Fett was just yeah. was kind of in a groove, uh, and I think that in Wozniacki's mind, all she was able to do was stay steady and hope that she wasn't far enough out of it that it was going to happen. And Fett, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, one of those match points, Fett did have a bad uh, break. I, I think that uh, she clipped a tape or something like that um, on a shot that more than likely would have won the match. I think there was something like that that yeah, happened. I believe so, um, but it really came down to to Fett. Missing those two break or uh, two match points, and and then she, it was all downhill from well, there. Well, she cracked because uh, yeah. you could tell that's all she was thinking about. And Wozniacki, being the savvy veteran that she is, took advantage of that, knew exactly what was going on on the other side of the net, played steady, didn't hurt herself, didn't you know she didn't make a, a ton of unforced errors, otherwise she would have lost the match. Uh, but by remaining steady and not um, not hurting herself it forced Fett to try to start to go for more and that's why she lost. And the same thing with Shapovalov. It was a great match, but Shapovalov, after not taking advantage of those opportunities that he had, um, that was, that was it. And, uh, you know, Zonga. And credit to Joe though. Credit to Zonga. He, uh, he, he fought very hard at that fourth and fifth sets to turn it around. Um, because in, in all terms of things, against a guy of Shapovalov's level, um, that's not easy to do that deep into a match. Um, especially, you know, when you go into that match a couple of years ago or even a year or two ago, we would have said, oh, well, Sanga would have easily won that match. That's not a question. But nowadays, that's not the case uh, where Joe's at now and where Shapovalov is now. So, you know, I got to say credit to Sanga to have dug as deep as he did and show how much he still wants it. Because let's be honest, I think that not only us, but the media, especially in the tennis world, have said uh, over the last year, you know, where is Sanga's commitment in the game right now? 
because we've seen him lose a lot of bad matches to people that he shouldn't be losing to. And it, it was good for me to see Sangha fight hard um, in a match like this where he was that far down um, and really, really turn it around and show how much he still wants it. It was good to see in my eyes. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that way too, Eric? Yeah. Um, I was a bit surprised, though, by Sangha's resilience. I mean, he, you know, years prior when he seemed like he was in better shape, better chance to uh, – to win things, he didn't do it. And then this is like a match that I think he should have lost, shouldn't have really won per se. Exactly. Um, and then he pulls it out. So I was, uh, I'm not really upset. I, you know, I, I, I want the young guns to do better than they are. Uh-huh. So tennis can get back to being a little more exciting. I mean, Rublev, uh, did a pretty good job. You know, he had chances against Dimitrov that he didn't take either. Uh, it was a good match. Um, Zverev, you know, uh, you know, make me a little upset though. He did lose to a fellow, you know, young, young gun himself. I think that it was, uh, not terrible considering Songa, I think is probably not going to be on the tour a lot longer. I give him another year or two. And then I think he's going to turn to being a coach and a family man. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've read some random, let's say random reports, but about, you know, his starting to, not enjoy the the traveling away from uh, his child that he mm-hmm. had, I think, last year, the year before. Um, yeah. Yep. So I, I think that'll maybe weighing on him. But mm-hmm. good to see Songa finally take out somebody good instead of taking out that kind of easier people. And then he gets into someone who's a little more evenly matched and he's been losing. That's kind of what I And that's why, that's why I felt that I was excited to see that Joe is willing to dig that deep against a quality opponent. Uh, you know, from two sets to one down and, and dig that deep to to win a, a tough match like this. Well, he better do it for the next. Oh, wait, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, wait we'll, a get second. To that. we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> better not spoil it. I forgot um, for half the, a second. But the last, the last escape of the day came late into the evening. Grigor Dimitrov uh, overcoming uh, American qualifier Mackenzie McDonald, 8-6 in the fifth set. Uh, another match uh, where I would say the the winner necessarily shouldn't have been who won. Uh, I think you guys might agree here. I watched the majority of that match, and McDonald had Dimitrov on the ropes many times over. Uh, this was probably uh, as bad a level as Dimitrov could have showed and still won a match. But admittedly, McDonald played amazing. He was super aggressive. Um, and, and was just taking it to Dimitrov. Uh, any any thoughts that you guys had on this escape? Because that's all that we can say that it was, was an escape. Yeah, it was basically just uh, Dimitrov being a little steadier uh, in specific moments and not letting McDonald take advantage of probably the, the couple of times in the match, uh, very specifically, that would have given him the win for sure. Uh, but... Dimitrov, that's, you know, sometimes that's what happens. You know, these players that have been around for a while, and Dimitrov is now, what, 26? He'll be 27, I believe, this year. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not a young pup anymore. He's been around. And so he's now to the point in his career where a lot of the things that he's learned over the years is allowing him to kind of steady himself a little more in matches that he would have lost even a couple of years ago. 
Uh, he's mm-hmm. using all that experience to his advantage, whereas someone like McDonald is uh, not used to these kind of matches and certainly not in matches against the quality of opponent like Dimitrov is. So mm-hmm. uh, Dimitrov just found a way. And we see that all the time with Nadal and Roger and Djokovic and some other players where the reality is they probably shouldn't have won the match. They weren't the better player that day, but they were just the better player in like four or five specific points. And those mm-hmm. four or five points are the difference between them losing and them winning. And that's what happened here. Agreed. Um, and I think that, you know, Dimitrov and, you know, we'll talk some more here down down the line. But um, I think Dimitrov has shown something in this tournament this year that maybe truly he realizes now that he does belong with these top guys and that he can truly can compete on that level. And admittedly, I think that in years past, we would have saw him lose this match. I definitely don't think that he would have hung around as long as he did in that match, and, and would, he wouldn't have pulled it out. I think he would have found a way to lose in years past, whereas maybe now he's truly in his mindset. You know, his mindset is now, I belong here. These are the type of matches that I'm not supposed to lose, but that I'm supposed to pull out and win. Yeah. For sure. So as we go into day four, this is where our our topic of discussion for the heat really came into effect. We saw a lot of players really struggle in the heat, and we saw a ton of upsets take place because of that heat, uh, or at least more than likely because of that heat. Uh, On the women's side, Sharapova kicked off the day upsetting Sevetsova uh, in a match that I think a lot of people thought maybe she wasn't going to win, but I don't. I think in my eyes, Sharapova went out there knowing that she was going to win. At least it seemed that way. Uh, as she really just completely took it to Sevetsova. Um, as far as the upsets that started, uh, the the biggest upset that took place, uh, Garbina Muguruza somewhat wilted in the heat, at least in my eyes, uh, against, I believe it's pronounced uh, Shui, I believe is how you pronounce the last name, Mike. Is that correct? I, you know what? I'm not uh, sure in, in myself. Who, I, I, I really don't I, I know. I think that's the pronunciation, and if I'm wrong, I apologize. But uh, she just completely outsteadied Muguruza in that match. Um, it was a close two sets, six four seven six. But in my eyes, it looked like Muguruza struggled through the whole thing. Um, did either of you see the match at all? I, did either I of watched you watch it. The first set, um, I okay. I wasn't around for uh, the the second uh, set, but I can honestly say. In the first set alone, I just felt like Muguruza looked sluggish out there. She didn't. She, like, she suffered in the heat a little bit. She, she definitely did, did but, in my eyes. You know, but here's the thing, and we'll get to this more in a little bit. I understand how hot it was, and, and there is a real issue at hand, and we'll talk about that shortly. But you've got to be able to do what's necessary to just get through matches like this. If you're if you're as good of a player as Muguruza is. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry. I I under. You know what? She the her opponent um, was out there as well. You know exactly. So exactly. it's it's not an excuse to me. I understand the issue at hand, and I agree. And we'll talk about that. But yet there is an issue. But if we're talking about factoring in why a player lost and why a player won, yes, yeah, some some players will be affected by heat more than others. But at the same time, you've got to go out and just do what's necessary. Uh, mm-hmm. So Muguruza looks sluggish out there in that first set that I saw. 
Mm-hmm. She wasn't moving around nearly as well as she should have been. And that's literally from the first point onward. So it's not like she was out there for like a really tough three setter. And it's like in the third set after she'd been playing for a couple hours, she was out there sluggishly moving around the court. This is like, you know, one game in, it's like, okay, Mukuruthi, you're not looking too great right now. What's going on? Uh, mm-hmm. So I, it's not a, it's not a issue of her being out there for hours. It was just, she was like that from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Um, we also saw another one of the top seeds drop as Joanna Conta again. Um, although Conta played, uh, in my eyes, a little bit better than Muguruza did as far as the way that she looked on court. The problem was, in my eyes, she she played a young and determined American who uh, none of us, I believe, have ever heard of in Bernarda Para, who seemingly has come out of nowhere and, and had a wonderful little tournament here. Uh, upsetting Conta uh, on day four in uh, another match that wasn't super long, um, but right in the middle of the heat conditions as well. But Para, seemingly in my eyes, Para didn't struggle at all with the heat, whereas Conta, again, I think kind of in the same thing as you said, Mike, with Muguruza, it appeared as though she more or less just struggled a little bit with the conditions and just wasn't as prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Um, we also then saw later on in the day, we saw a, a very odd scoreline and something that I can't remember the last time I saw, um, Lauren Davis, American Lauren Davis played in Drake Pekovic, uh, again, right in the middle of the heat of the day, Pekovic winning the first set six, four, and then completely just welted in the heat and lost six, zero, six, zero in the second and third sets, uh, a scoreline that we don't see very often. Um, Again, I agree with you guys that I don't think that we can say that I mean, everybody's going out there at the same time. They're both struggling with the heat, but it, it's amazing that when you have players that are in this position that are in, you know, um, that have been playing as long as they have and, and they're ranked as, as high as they are, that they struggle so bad in the heat, whereas others, it seemingly doesn't affect them at all. Um, which again is something you know that we're going to get into more. And then, then we had our usual suspects. We had Halep look impressive, Kerber looked impressive. We had Madison Keys looking impressive. Carolina Pliskova, again, um, continuing to look uh, on form. So, although we had a lot of upsets, we did have some of the top names that we would expect to play well and go through the heat. They went through the heat fine. Um, so again, that kind of gets into that that uh, topic of discussion that we'll have later on here. Um, on the men's side, something that I'll, I'll kind of let you open with, Eric. You had uh, mentioned about Malfis uh, in his match with Djokovic, um, basically all but quitting on the court. Um, did you watch the, uh, a good portion of that match, or or was this more or less just from your coverage afterwards that you saw of how bad Malfis struggled in the heat? It's from the highlights. Um, yeah. You know, he said himself he felt like he had a mini heat stroke. Uh, you could tell for, you know, close to an hour there where he was just kind of out of sorts. And I didn't get to see everything because it was just the highlights. But I kind of saw what they said because I've watched Fulham Monfils long enough and I've seen him play to know that something was different. Something was – it wasn't him being goofy and funny either. It just – something wasn't quite there. Not to mention pretty much every changeover that he had – um, you know, from any of the clips that anybody's going to watch of this match, uh, every single changeover, every time they sat down on the chair, Malfeast was literally drenching himself with water. Um, I, 
there couldn't have been a dry spot on him because he was completely drenching himself um, with water. Uh, I think there was a few instances where he literally was walking into the back of the court, um, you know, back back against the wall in the shade, trying to get any bit of uh, reprieve that he could from the heat, and there wasn't any um, for him uh, at all. Djokovic, on the other hand, I think you guys would agree, uh, looked perfectly fine. He definitely didn't look like it was bothering him at all, um, at least in my eyes. Yeah, uh, he looked like... Um... I don't know. Heat's always been an issue with Djokovic. Uh, I think maybe he took a little heart from seeing just how badly Monfils was doing on the other side of the net. So it it was if, painful to watch. Yeah, and it, I think it, it was. And I think even if Djokovic was being affected at all by the Heat, I think he wanted to send a message to Monfils as well, like, "Hey, I'm fine over here. Um, I'm I'm doing dandy. Uh, I can stand here for the next three or four hours, uh, no problem." And um, you know, Monfils, you know, mind games, maybe, and maybe not. Maybe it it's just be. Djokovic yep. was fine. Who knows? Um, we also saw Dominic Team uh, overcome some bad form early in the heat of the day uh, against American Dennis Kudla, who took a two sets lead, uh, two sets to none on Team before Team uh, roared back to win in five sets. Um, I would say it wasn't the same way as like the Dimitrov or was the Yankee saves where they were literally on the brink of losing. I think although team was down two sets, I I've had the feeling in this match that, that it wasn't completely out of grasp for him. Um, I don't know if either of you saw it or not, but from what I saw in that match, it, it looked as though obviously team was not playing at his best early on and Kudlu was playing at a very high level. But I don't think that team was in the same danger that that Wozniacki and Dimitrov were the day before. Uh, would you guys agree on that one? Um, I just saw highlights of the match, yeah, so okay. I can't comment too much. But Eric, did you yeah. see it at all? No, no, that I didn't get to watch a lot that day. Um, not even really highlights, so I, I kind of missed what what really happened there. Okay. Okay. Um, we, we talked about uh, the Heat. Uh, one of the, the most uh, titanic of battles uh, between two very big hitters, Del Potro and uh, the Russian Hechnov, uh, both of them struggling a little under four hours uh, right in the middle of the day. Although these two, um, th this was probably quality-wise one of the better matches of the day between the two. Uh, like I said, they went just under four hours for the day. Uh, both definitely struggled with the heat, although uh, Del Potro did win in just under four hours. Um, the reason that I bring it up is the effects that I think that had um, for his next match, um, which again, we're, we're talking about the effects of the heat then at that point. Um, we talked earlier about um, the, uh, the nighttime, daytime thing taking place. Uh, we did see Nadal and Federer through those first couple days. We didn't really mention them. But both of them pretty much rolled in their first two matches. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot to talk about about them. Um, I'm sure the fans are kind of saying, well, you guys love Federer and Nadal. Why aren't you talking about them? Well, there's not a whole lot to talk about. Their matches were pretty straightforward. Yeah, we're not going to um, spend time talking about, you know, a player who's things won. That are th other things that were happening. Yeah, yeah. Six, yeah <laughs> Nadal or, um, or Federer winning easy isn't something to mention. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um I think the, the the biggest thing of day four um, for me, uh, American the American Sandrin uh, who uh, went to the University of Tennessee had a big win in, in upsetting Stan Wawrinka. But 
I think that not necessarily temperature related, but I think that we would all agree that uh, Stan is definitely not 100% after this match. Uh, I think he looked very labored and was not moving well at all. And and I don't want to say it was because of the heat. I actually don't think the heat affected him that much. I think it was just a simple fact that uh, I don't think physically he's ready to go yet, uh, which we had talked about before the tournament started. Did you guys uh, see anything at all with Stan um, and, and how he looked? I think he, he just looked fine. Yeah. Well, you no, guys thought he looked fine. I, I know. I thought that, I mean, I he mean, wasn't movement. lipping around the court, but I remember there were points in that match where, especially towards the end where he was like, he was standing there after a point and just kind of like his hand on his knee and just kind of like looking down at it. Like mm-hmm. you could tell he's not, he's not fully healed. He's not a hundred percent. And we heard about this going into the tournament. And again, I think this is a lot like Ranich. Yeah. Really, I think yeah. they probably should have just pulled out of the tournament, and that was it. Ranich, Wawrinka, they're not ready. Physically, they weren't ready. But I feel like this was kind of a test. Where are we at? Let's get into some matches. Let's just see what it looks like, and we'll go from there. Um, but do I feel like there were actual, there's actual confidence for Wawrinka going into this tournament? Not even in the slightest. So I, th- right. I think this was just about... Um, you know, about Marinka trying and seeing what happened. But no, he, he looked like he was laboring a bit with, you know, knee wise. Okay. Okay. So basically, you know, day four ends day. Five, I think day five, we started to see the temperatures kind of drop back. Things started to kind of get back to normal. We started to see the tournament kind of return to its normal form, uh, where we started seeing guys like Nadal, Dimitrov, Kyrgios, and Chilich all dominated on day five. Not a whole lot to talk about as far as struggles that they had. They all looked very good uh, and had some, you know, impressive wins. Uh, We did see another marathon match by uh, Ivo Karlovic uh, going down to Andreas Seppi in five sets. Uh, on the women's side, uh, we did see um, French champion Yelena Ostapenko uh, get knocked out by uh, Kontavite. Um, we did see Wozniacki after her escape from the day, you know, from day three. We did see her having a very impressive victory over uh, Kiki Burton's uh, in the evening session, and we saw uh, another one of the favorites to win, Elena Svitolina, uh, stop another uh, Ukrainian, which was. Uh, and, and Kostiuk, I believe, is how you uh, pronounce it. Yeah, Kostiuk. Uh, kind of the kind of the young standout of the tournament, I think we would say for her. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. She's 15. 15. 15 years old. Uh, makes it to day five, and uh, for a few games, gave Svitolina a little bit of trouble. But but let's be honest, the the level of play, big difference between the two right now. But definitely Kostiuk, someone to look forward to going forward. Um, so on day five, we, we somewhat had order restored. Uh, we saw a lot of the top players not struggle, and we saw a lot of things uh, as, their, as the normalcy kind of happened. Well, no, day six came by, and uh, no, the upsets continued on day six. Um, the probably uh, match of the tournament at this point, uh, we saw Simona Halep, the number one seed. Uh, we didn't talk about it, but on day one uh, in her opening round match, she turned her ankle um, there was talk that it was, you know, not good that she, you know, wasn't doing well with it. She looked fine and uh, up through this match. Um, 
first off, did either of you see the Hallop match on day six, uh, which was a 15-13 marathon uh, uh, free yeah. setter um, where she, she beat Lauren Davis? Yep. yep, Lauren had her chances too. Uh, she did. Definitely. Every, go ahead. Every, go ahead. Every, go ahead. every time she should have broken Hallop back, she would hit really weird she would like pull her off court mm-hmm. Halep would hit a shot back and then she would flub the easy put away like we're talking like just hit it anywhere in the court and, and it's your point type of of hit. And she did that twice within a matter of a couple of games and it would have been if one of those games would have done i think it was like five all and she would have broken her and she could have held and it would have been her seven five boom had it you know, mm-hmm. and it was the game before that one, I think, and then that game or the game after, like there was a couple of points and you just saw her get deflated, mm-hmm. you know, right after. And that took all of her wind out of trying to break Halep. I'm like, yep, can't do that. Um, I think one of the big turning points of the match, uh, it was 11-10 that Davis was up. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike. It was 11-10. Uh, Halep was serving down two match points. I believe um, so, yeah. Where I believe at that point in time, um, we saw Lauren Davis almost kind of fall to the court a little bit. Um, we came to find out that uh, Halep survives the game, gets to 11 all, and we see Davis then call for the trainer. She completely ripped the toenail off of her second toe on her foot. Ouch. Um, in what looked very excruciatingly painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and hey, now we're at 11 all. Uh, in a fifth set match, or in a, in a third set, eleven on in the third, deep into a match, um, and now you've got to call for the trainer and completely lose all momentum. Do do you feel as though that did change the match? Do you think that had that not happened, that that Davis pulls that out right there? Do you, do you think that was a big swing? Um, I think it gave uh, Halep a chance to kind of gather recompo- herself, recompose herself, mm-hmm. gather herself, and. Um, mentally prepare for what she knew was going to be a few games possibly um, of difficult, maybe difficult tennis, who knows. But mm-hmm. um, there's a point where if you stop momentum, it can be a real issue. And it depends on the player who's stopping the momentum and who needs it. Lauren Davis needed that momentum. Uh, she needed to keep going. I felt like that would have benefited her. But at the end of the day, you got to remember too, it's all kind of speculation um, mm-hmm. because we just don't know. Um, had she kept playing and the toenail wouldn't have been an issue, maybe she wins. Maybe right. it isn't an issue and she still loses. It it really is just, there's too many factors. It's a terrible thing to happen in a, in a match of that quality because admittedly, um, for anybody that watched this match, uh, although I agree with you, Eric, that there were a lot of instances where uh, Davis had opportunities to shut the door and didn't, um, the the amount of slugfesting going on between these two was pretty amazing uh, over nearly four hours. Uh, these two basically went out there and were literally just ripping it at each other back and forth um, and both played some amazing shots, uh, made some amazing plays, and it was, it was an impressive match to watch. I implore anyone to go back and watch it. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on the stat, third longest match in women's history uh, at a Grand Slam. I, yeah, believe. I believe so. I believe that's the I case. So, so um, definitely something for anybody to go back and watch. Um, any last thoughts on it at nope. all? Nope, I think it's good. Okay, uh, we we did see um, we did see something that I think has spurred maybe another contender into this tournament. 
Uh, we saw Angelique Kerber come out on day six and absolutely crush Maria Sharapova um, in a very decisive, decisive way. Uh, and I think in, in, in the talks of who is the favorite now, I think Angelique Kerber has put herself back in that position of being a possible favorite to win after this victory. Um, would you any any thoughts on that victory there? Um, Eric, do you want to go? Do you want me to go? Yeah, I, I didn't watch it. I was just happy. Okay, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't like Kerber either, but I was like, yeah, good. Yeah. Okay, uh, I just I, th- I thought that it was good, and I agree. She's back, and um, I I contend again. We talked about it all last year. I think she was burned out, and maybe there was an injury issue there. We don't know for sure. Uh, so until she says that there was, which I don't think she will at this point, um, I I can only go by what the only other thing I could think being an issue, and that was just burnout, exhaustion, mentally yeah. fatigued. And I think she got what she needed, which was some time off and some uh, some training and uh, really looking at things last year. Things she did well, things she didn't do well, but I think just getting mentally refreshed and she's back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we saw the last Australian hopeful, uh, Ash Barty, go down to uh, young, young up-and-comer Naomi Osaka, who someone that we've talked about on and off is a, is a you know potential to really be a factor going forward. Uh, and then we also saw Madison Keys uh, continue dom- a dominant form. Um, definitely somebody to look out for in the second week, uh, as she, um, I don't think she dropped a set, did she, Mike? Nope. The hasn't week? dropped a set yet. Nope. So, uh, definitely someone to watch out for there. On the men's side, on the other hand, um, some of the usual suspects, we saw Federer team and Djokovic look very strong on day six, um, and, and definitely, uh, show a strong, you know, vein of form that they're continuing, um, we did see American standout Sandgren, who had his uh, upset over uh, Stan earlier in the tournament, continue and get into the fourth round. Uh, an impressive run for him. Um, we also saw, um, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, didn't we hear a while back that Julian Beneteau was retiring? Yeah, well, because the tournament he is. Yeah, so uh, an awesome run for him, but ending to uh, Fabio Fanini, who... Again, we know we've talked about Fonini before um, and, and the way that he can be on the court, but uh, Fonini showing an, a good vein of form, winning 6-3 in the fifth set over Beneteau there, and a nice run for Beneteau uh, considering because I don't think a lot of us would have thought that he would have even gotten that far um, with some of the you know, showings that he's had in previous years. So good run for him. Definitely. Um, go ahead, Mike. Oh, no, no, I should say definitely. Good run. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, – we had uh, Tomas Burdich and Del Potro in what would have likely been one of the better matches of the day. Um, in my eyes, we talked about the heat affecting Del Potro and Hatchnov in their match. I feel like Del Potro definitely looked uh, definitely tired going into that match, but Burdich played a great match, credit to him. Uh, did either of you see that match at all? I saw a yeah. little bit, um, and I saw the highlights as well. I can honestly say yeah. that might be the best all-around match that – that Tomas Brodich has played in a, a while. long time. Yeah. 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 Uh, so we could look to see Burdich make a nice impressive run here in Australia again. Um, and then the, the biggest thing of the day, um, well, uh, Mike, your hopeful Alexander Zverev goes down in what could be called a fiery crash. Um, 
Zverev loses to Chung 6-0 in the fifth set, winning, correct me if I'm wrong, five points in the fifth set, yeah. I believe was the stat. Um, thoughts on this, guys? Uh, Zverev obviously was one of the favorites coming in as one of the young guns that could have had the opportunity to win here, and this is a horrible loss. Uh, probably one of the worst losses that we've seen out of him um, in this stretch. But credit to Chung, who played a really good match and obviously winning the next gen finals last year showed us that he is primed to, you know, take that position and, and run with it. Um, yeah, I just, I think it's just sad that he lost, uh, in that I feel like he came into this tournament. There were some questions obviously, uh, because he hadn't played great leading into the Australian open, but you know, there were some questions, but he was at the point of his career now where you feel like, He's been in some of these grand slams. He should be making some progress, and he's not. He is continuing to lose early and not necessarily against elite competition. You know, he lost here against Nadal last year. Understandable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, understandable. Absolutely. But he lost in a tough five-setter. Now, he lost in a tough five-setter here, and I'm not trying to come down on on, uh, Chung because he is definitely a, a good young player, but... I just feel like uh, this was a bit of a step back. And I do think that the team, Zverev team, has got to be a little little worried here. And not, not that I feel like he's going to never win a slam or anything. I'm not going to say that. I just feel like he's a little worried. And I understand why they would be worried because this has gone from being something that you could just chalk up to being young and inexperienced to... This is happening and it's beginning to be a pattern now as opposed to being something you can brush off last year as being he's just really starting to, you know, come into his own and really get the experience necessary to go through deep in the slams. He's still losing. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think so, too. I was I was expecting him to go further. Um but, you know, like I said before, I, I'm pretty certain I said Chung could be a dark horse once the draw came out. Absolutely. Uh, because he won he won the ATP, uh, well, the Milan, whatever you want to call it. The next-gen finals. Next-gen yep. finals yep. in Milan. Um, now, I don't quite think he's going to have a lot in the tank to take on a Djokovic, but you don't know. Uh, he could surprise Djokovic. You know, he's going to come out. He beat Zverev. Um, he won the Milan finals, you know, he's done really well. I mean, Mevdevev being, um, before Zverev kind of his toughest match. Cause I don't know if I'd say Kokonakis counted cause he retired, you know, he was up six, two, four, one and, uh, you know, Kokonakis had to bow out. So I'd say it's a pretty good test, uh, especially winning six, three, six, oh, kind of decisively. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I think he's got a chance. I got to say, I got to put put him at an outside chance, 20% chance to beat Djokovic uh, for Chung. It is sad that Zverev lost, but like I said, uh, mental toughness. might have been heat too, but I think Zverev mentally broke broke down and just, just didn't want to play, didn't want to finish. And that's how you get a 6-0 yeah. is someone who's given up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we go into day seven. Uh, we actually finally have reason to talk about uh, Federer and Nadal at all. Uh, Nadal finally lost his first set, uh, albeit uh, 
I think I think we all fig- figured that this would be a t- at least a test for Nadal. But l- let's be honest. I think I don't think any of us felt we was, he was going to lose to Schwartzman. But I definitely think that we finally would see how how good a form Nadal is in. And I think you guys were very happy with the performance against Schwartzman. Yeah. Oh yeah. Four hours on court. Didn't have any nagging. You know, nothing with the knee. Mm-hmm. Um, he had his chances in the second set. I mean, he was up uh, three times. He had a break. Yeah. It yep. was just a seesaw. Schwartzman just hung around. Yeah, it was just a seesaw <laughs> set. Ended up losing it. But, you know, the fact that he went through it and doesn't seem to have anything, you know, from it, your, you know, day of rest uh, will help. And then he's going to have to get ready for Chilich. So uh, I was excited uh, on the win. Uh, yeah, you know, watching the match, I can honestly tell you that this is, this is a win that actually is a good thing. And... By that, I mean, you could take a look at the Dimitrov match against McDonald um, and, and some of the other five setters where maybe the the player that won didn't deserve to win or they played up and down throughout the match, you know, kind of didn't play very well for a while and then they would raise their level and then they would drop it, you know, where it's like more of a seesaw level. And mm-hmm. I honestly feel like in this match, both players were playing really, really well. It, it kind of reminded me of that Andy Murray-Nadal match at Wimbledon back in 2011. Uh, no, 10. I think it was 2010, where Nadal won in three sets, but they were three extremely high-quality sets. So if you looked at it and you said, okay, Nadal won that match in straight sets and you didn't watch it, you would think, oh, man, okay, so Murray got crushed. No, it was. It just happened to work out that it was a three-setter, but it was an exceptionally well-played three-set match from both players. And it was the same thing here. Schwartzman is one of those players that really gives you everything he's got constantly. Oh, yeah. And he's consistent, Definitely. and he, he doesn't often beat himself. Uh, he, and for a little guy at 5'7", he's got a ton of firepower. So he's never really, I think, an easy out. And so in this match, I just felt like Nadal and Schwartzman were both playing at a particularly high level, and Nadal just happened to win those sets. So uh, this is a good match because it allowed Nadal to play a lot of balls, get into a lot of big rallies, just like he wants, and uh, played a guy who was playing really well. And that's what you want. And so he came through this in four sets in a match that could have easily gone five. Uh, and maybe even lost, even, you know, because Schwartzman was playing that well. So uh, I felt this was a really good test, and Nadal came through it. And uh, yes, he was out there for four hours, but his knee held up uh, very well. He said no pain. And uh, this is the kind of match that will give him confidence going into the back end of the tournament. Absolutely. Uh, and then, as you said, Eric, uh, next up is, is Marin Cilic for him. So. Uh, we we will look for a, a nice quarterfinal matchup there. Um, also on day seven, we saw uh, probably the, the biggest star-studded match of the tournament. We saw uh, Grigor Dimitrov and Nick Kyrgios uh, battled out in three, four very close sets with Dimitrov coming out on top. Um, really good match, high quality between the two. Uh, lots of shot-making taking place. 
Um, definitely implore anybody to go back and take a look at that match because it was a very high quality. Uh, just curious, ju- uh, just faltering sometimes uh, at the big moments, and Dimitrov just taking advantage of of being in this situation. Um, I think that at this point in time, I think we all kind of feel that the Dimitrov Nadal matchup rematch in the semifinals is looming. I think you would both agree on that. Um, and I think that getting through a match like this against Kyrgios was big for Dimitrov uh, for confidence-wise if that matchup does end up taking place. Would you guys agree? Um, yeah, probably. <clears throat> I think so. Are, are you guys feeling that? Are you? I mean, we're not necessarily going through here and, and saying our picks now you know, to the end, but I think we would all agree that right now it looks like the Dimitrov-Nadal rematch in the semifinal is very likely yeah, at this probably. point in the top half. Probably. Yeah, yeah. One little side note. Uh, before the tournament started, we had announced that Hewitt had come out of retirement to play uh, doubles. Uh, as day seven uh, rolled on, him and Sam Groth are now into the quarterfinals of the doubles. Yeah, um, they, do they int- play the Brian Brenner brothers? Uh, I didn't look at the draw. I'm not sure who they play next, but I do say that, you know, I just thought that was an interesting little thing we brought up about Hewitt uh, coming out of retirement to play doubles. And, hey, Hewitt's in the quarterfinals now with Sam Groth. Uh, I just thought that was a nice little uh, tidbit to throw out there. Um, not a lot to talk about on the women's side. We saw Wozniacki and Svitolina, who definitely seem to be the two favorites in the bottom half uh, since all the other seeds are gone. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, those two continue to dominate and not a whole lot to talk of otherwise. Um, any final thoughts on the recapping of the action, guys? Any Anything else that you can think of? No, I mean that's pretty much it. Yeah. It was just a, it yeah. was a crazy, yeah. it was a crazy first week. Crazy first week. That's what we expect in Australia, in the land of us. <laughs> All right, so uh, guess we'll be going into the next set and yep, uh, set three, yep. set three. So, but first um, up is going to be uh, our ad here for Spindlecraft. Do you remember the last time you picked up a pen and noticed the quality? How about a razor you handled that didn't feel cheaply made? When was the last time a product made a true and lasting impression on you? In this era of the mass-produced and disposable, anything lovingly handcrafted seems to be a rare thing. Maybe it's time for a change, and Spindlecraft can help. At Spindlecraft, passion and superior quality make it stand out from the faceless, automated crowd. Material for each piece of work is thoughtfully chosen, crafted, sanded, and finally polished with the kind of attention to detail and dedication you can't get off of an assembly line. At Spindlecraft, they know that quality of the material is as important as the quality of the craftsmanship and is a reflection of both the artist and the customer. So rather than buying some cheap pens or razors that you won't give a second thought, purchase something from Spindlecraft. To see what they have to offer, go to www.spindlecraft.com and at the checkout, enter the word GEEKS. That's G-E-E-K-S to get 10% off. We're sure that once you have a Spindlecraft product in your hand, you won't want to put it down. Right, so on to a couple of our the topics of discussion that we were bringing about. Eric, I'll kind of let you take a little bit of a lead on this one here. Uh, we we talked about a little bit the the Djokovic uh, 
I don't want to say controversy, but some of the, the, the things that he brought up prior to the tournament. Um, and, and there was some news that came out of some things that he said that maybe he didn't say. But I, I know that you've done a lot of research on what went on, and I, I'm kind of going to let you take the lead on this here. So if you want, just re-kind of cap what was kind of said, what wasn't said, and what, what uh, the media said and what Djokovic said he said. <laughs> Yeah, the media kind of ran, um, you know, with some of their stories that Djokovic was demanding more prize money um, when in all actuality it was during the player meeting. Um, he was demanding more prize money for everybody, not for the top person, not the winner. Uh, he, you know, talked about there needs to be more money again distributed to for the tournament. Um, Federer touched on that, that, you know, it's been – you know, a few years now, more than a few years since everybody came together and kind of demanded uh, them to increase the prize money a little bit. They've been doing small increases, but the problem is, is, you know, you can say, you know, oh, we're going to increase the, the total prize pool by a million dollars. Well, you split a million dollars up between 128 people um, on the men's side. And that's if they even say between men's and women's, they just say the tournament purse goes a million what men's women's doubles mixed doubles you know that's not a lot lot of money it's a lot of spread and thin exactly it's a lot of money it doesn't help um and especially if you try to split it up accordingly it's not like a million dollars gets spread evenly no Uh, biggest chunk goes to the winner and then it just it trickled down effect so um that was the first thing that was kind of miss misled was that that he was demanding more money for the winners and stuff like that which wasn't true um and it was also about uh, um, him wanting to boycott because of it. You know, him wanting to start a boycott, which wasn't true. He talked about starting a players' union um, to where they could, you know, start controlling their their destiny uh, a little bit, um, which they haven't really had a lot right now. The ATP Player Council isn't isn't the same thing. Uh, it's not a union. Um, it is you know, selected by your peers, but still it's not, it's not the same exact thing. So, uh, that there was, they were painting him in a bad light. And this is coming from someone who's not a fan of Djokovic, but it wasn't the case. Um, what he was talking about, uh, because they weren't there. I mean, that was the problem They they asked, you know, for all the, um, writers and people, you know, to leave the room, uh, after whatever meeting was, was there, there was one that it was in front of everybody and then it was a closed door meeting. So naturally the media just decided to speculate and run with what they thought they heard or this or that, you know, not getting all the info. And that's how you have four or five headlines, you know, painting Djokovic as a really bad person when that's just not the case. If they would actually do, you know, some investigative discovery like they're supposed to be doing um, and waiting to report, they would have had, you know, the the correct information absolutely any any uh, thoughts on any of that mike um yeah i mean i look at it like this Uh, the first couple of days this was a huge deal because the news that was coming out did make it sound absolutely terrible and i remember eric when you and i were first beginning to do the the daily recaps we did mention that we wanted to hold off um because we didn't know all the information and i wanted to find out what other things were going to come out over the course of the, you know, three, four days, uh, three or four or five days after this all came about, because I'd, I'd rather be well-informed 
than just immediately jump on the podcast and start talking about it because you know this is the prime example of what can happen when you don't get all the information until it's too late and um, or not you you get the information and you <clears throat> kind of run with it if you if you actually wait around until you get the full story that's when you can comment much better on the situation and I feel like this is one of those times where I'm glad we waited because the truth came out eventually which obviously it's not nearly as bad you know as as it was made out to be initially so I don't know how the the media got the information they got I don't know how that came about exactly but um, it definitely made him look uh, much worse in in the first couple of days of the tournament. So I'm glad we waited. Well, and yeah. Well, yeah, because I mean he had a speech, and then that's what happened. He he it wasn't just the the Australian Open that he was calling on the fellow players to form a union in an effort to fight, you know, for the right on a greater share of the profits from tennis tournaments, which has benefited directly from Roger, Djokovic, uh, Nadal, Murray. The big four basically brought tennis into a greater greater um forefront um than Mm -hmm. it was before um making everybody more and more money and while you know like i said you're splitting tournament money over so many people you know an increase of 10 percent to the purse uh the total purse isn't isn't anything when you split it up over that many people you know it needs to be a bigger increase um and not necessarily just for the winners because the winners in their own right win more than enough money, I think even they would agree. Um, but it affects it affects the game and the competition of the game when you know you need you know you need to be bankrolled by somebody basically to to get off to start. It's really hard for young young people to start playing on tour sixteen, seventeen, and eighteen and compete with someone who's twenty five, even if that person's generally not better. You know if they can afford better rest, better food, better coaches, you know, that's, that's enough to make a big difference. So it's, it's all about trying to level the playing field. And so people can actually survive playing tennis if they're only making it to the first rounds, second rounds of stuff. They're not really getting anywhere far. You know, as of right now, we've seen ATP player profiles, you know, talking about, you know, credit card debt. You know, the one guy last year made it to, the first round first round in a major he's ever made it to and you know he was like you know what are you going to do with your prize money it was like 40 50 thousand he's like well thankfully it's going to be able to pay off my credit card that i've been putting you know the year's expenses on you like seventeen thousand dollars on a credit card he said it's going to go you know to that paying some more bills and then i'll have a little bit of money to start over with next year it's like yeah that's that's how hard it is you it's know? a vicious cycle it, it is because there's not there's not the money that needs to be there for this day and age for people to survive. Yeah, you know, I I need to I say they when they add in they add money to these tournaments when they make the change, the finalist and the winner they don't their their pools shouldn't be increased. I agree. You you win one master series, okay? Unless you're like just an idiot with money, you win one master series title. Um, what was Monte Carlo? It's like a million. It's like the most expensive, but the other ones are like 800,000. It's like the minimum for winning, you know, that's enough. 
that you don't you don't need 1.2 1.5 you know you need they need to spread this money out between the first and second round third round and then that'll help foster the growth of tennessee because if they don't it's going to turn into a crap show when the big four retire because you don't have anybody who's carrying the sport because it's a carousel Definitely agree. I, I definitely, in my eyes, I think that if they're looking, as you said, to increase the pull, I think that that entire pull should go to the first week's earnings. I don't think that it should change the back half of the tournament at all. Um, and that I, I agree. In fact, I'm perfectly fine. Like you said, Eric, first and second round should get the entire, you know, the entirety or, and, and, you know, just incrementally push it from there. But I mean, I think the front half of the tournament <clears throat> The early rounds is where that money needs to go um, because we've talked about it on previous podcasts that if if the lower-ranked people, the players, are able to afford the, the things that – not necessarily the same things, but afford the luxuries that, like you said, better rest, better fitness – uh, you know, better trainers, better food, things of that sort. If you're able to have those kind of things, then you can truly get to your true potential. And a lot of players struggle with the fact that, you know, they're more worried about getting to the next tournament and being able to even get to the next tournament than they are about what they're probably putting in their body. Whereas you have the top guys. I mean, they got people, you know, making specialty food for them every day. Djokovic, the prime example with his, you know, gluten-free diet that he has. So um, I, I definitely, I definitely agree with you both. I think that was that was perfect uh, on that on that discussion. Any final thoughts on it at all? Uh, nope, that's it. Okay. Uh, the other topic that we were bringing up was, um, th- you know, a lot of years when we have Austra- the Australian Open, we see the heat is always a factor every year. We see that it is a big deal. We usually have a ton of retirements due to the heat um, from previous years. Um, but the reason we wanted to bring it up this year, um, we have heard players complaining more, even though we haven't seen as many retirements as we usually do. But uh, the reason that we bring it up, um, Mike, you had read an article that um, they recorded on-court temperatures as high as 156 degrees um, on day four. Yeah, it's not so a typo. So when we're talking about temperatures, uh, 156 degrees Fahrenheit, we talk about temperatures getting to that point. Um, we know that they have their their heat ruling that if it gets over 40 degrees Celsius um, in Australia, that um, they basically get to the point where they have to close the roof and they have to stop play. At this instance, though, um, when – when are we saying that the line is drawn with players at this point? Um, okay, look, here's the thing. I, I, feel, I feel like it's got to be something that is um, – I, I think the issue with the heat needs to be revisited. I think it's definitely um, – because the actual temperature itself – is not necessarily a true reflection, all right? It's not necessarily a true reflection of um, the real heat on the court, right? Because if it's 100 degrees, it's kind of like a car, right? If it's 90 degrees outside Fahrenheit, you go out to your car, you get inside your car, it's hotter than 90 degrees. It it just is. So it's the same on the court where you have the heat radiating up off of, you know, the, the court, Plus 
<laughs> the sun is beating down on you as well. And on top of that, you're in a stadium. It's like a giant kiln. All right. So you got the body heat of everybody around you, all the, you know, say 2,000, 3,000 people in the stands, the heat coming down, the heat radiating up off the court. So it's all this heat just kind of building inside this, this stadium and it's not escaping much up and out. So it's just a real issue. And for me, I look at this and I think, okay, you know what? What we have here is. Uh, I think a tournament that is renowned for the heat issues and you have players out there that are saying, look, I'm woozy. I'm, I'm having an issue. I'm standing out here and I'm getting dizzy and it's not just the men and it's not just the women. It's both. This needs to be revisited definitely because it can't just be the, the temperature. It has to be what are the temperatures on court? Because that's the actual temperatures that are affecting the players. It's not because it's 95 degrees. It's, it's 95 degrees, but then with the, the humidity and this and that, and then the temperature radiating up off the court, the actual on-court temperature is 127 degrees. 127 degrees is way too high. They need to revisit this, and they need to do it for next year because you don't want some player collapsing and dying out in your court. That's not going to help. <laughs> I, I mean, in my instance of things, is that what it's going to take for them to revisit it? No, I think because I, when we have when so. we had, I mean, we we talked about it a little bit just just a little bit ago here. We had Malfi saying that he honestly felt like he was having a walkabout stroke for a good forty minutes out there in that heat. Mm-hmm. Now again, we know that you know Malfi sometimes is not the fittest guy, but the fact is when you when you're feeling that way out there, but you don't want to retire. You don't want to retire from a match. Nobody wants to do that. But the fact is when you're having those conditions and you're feeling as though, you know, that you're you are, like you said, you're dizzy, you're woozy, whatever you want to say, um, obviously there's an issue there. Um, and more more than enough players have come out and said that it's an issue at this point. Um, I do believe like in, in Muguruza's match, she herself said that the temperatures were so hot that she took a medical timeout at the end of the first set to have her feet taped because she was feeling it was so hot that it was burning her feet. Now, obviously, um, you know, we've all played when it's warm. We've all played when it's hot outside and you can feel that temperature. But if you literally feel like your feet are burning on the surface of the court, that's too hot. I mean, and like you said, Mike, I think it's got to be factored in. Air temperature cannot be the, the sole thing that they need to look at. Honestly, I agree that the on-court temperature is what they truly need to be looking at um, as to what these players are really feeling. And I agree. I think that it's got to be revisited and it's got to be revisited sooner than later. Definitely for next year. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Because it can't continue. Some player is going to go out there and and have a stroke or die. Um, That's, uh, you know, something that can't happen. So if they want the safety to be a factor, they're going to have to rethink the policy and hopefully announce something for next year. So, uh, all right. So we are at the end of our episode. Uh, we will be back next week for our you know review of the Australian Open. Definitely review of the second week and a chance for us to talk about, you know, who won the tournament and, uh, Exciting matchups ahead. Yeah, because there's going to be a lot of great matches between now and then. And, you know, the finals are going to be amazing, I'm sure, on the men's and women's side. So we'll review all of that. Uh, Until next time, uh, have a good time watching tennis. 
and we'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Addict Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Addict Podcast by Freaking Geeks Media. Be sure to visit freakinggeeks.com as well as our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash freakinggeeks for more great content. Also, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really helps. If you would like to write into the podcast and share your thoughts and ask questions, you can do so by sending your email to tennisaddictpodcast at gmail.com. You can contact Michael on Twitter using at Michael underscore Lanik or at FreakGeeks. Intro music for this episode is Danger Storm by Kevin McLeod, which can be found at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Outro music is Nowhere Land by Kevin McLeod, which can be found at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. You can also find the attribution in the episode description as well.